Please note that this episode contains conversations centered on sexual assault, sexual harassment, and domestic violence. You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. This time last year, the Radio Ed team was working on an episode about the Harvey Weinstein trial and verdict and what it meant for institutionalized sexual violence. Then COVID quarantines hit, and we had to leave that episode on the cutting room floor. But this idea stuck with us. It's been a full year since Weinstein was found guilty, and revelations like the new allegations of sexual harassment made against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo continue to surface, and the pandemic has only increased vulnerabilities for women. So we decided to take a look back with DU professor Anda Prince, whose research focuses on the impact of violence and trauma, particularly on women. She joined me in a conversation about the legacy of the Weinstein trial and how the Me Too movement has adapted through 2020. So last year after Harvey Weinstein was handed a guilty verdict, you wrote that you hoped to see a groundbreaking transformation in terms of how survivors are treated. Did that vision turn out to be a reality? Well, after the verdict, uh, indeed, my colleague, Dr. Joan Cook from Yale University, she and I wrote uh, with a lot of hope in our hearts uh, a series of what ifs. We wondered um, what, what if the trial signified uh, a change in how people respond to sexual assault? What if uh, instead of responding with blame or doubt, um, we affirmed and supported survivors? You know, what if the trial meant finally shattering rape myths? Um, and we imagined that those what ifs together uh, could be a new day for supporting survivors, holding abusers accountable, preventing sexual violence. Uh, I still to this day believe that vision is one worth investing in and working towards, uh, but a year later we are most certainly not there. So can you talk about what impact then, if any, the verdict did have? Have we seen rates of gender-based violence decrease at all? Has there been an increase in convictions? Are there any tangible things that we can hold on to that came out of that? Yeah, what a great question. I think the verdict showed that it's possible for prosecutors to take cases that they had historically shied away from. Uh, It also showed that very powerful men can be held accountable for sexual harassment and sexual assault. However, uh, while the particular case in New York uh, for which um, Weinstein was found guilty on, on several counts, the charges there related to three women And yet more than 80 women, uh, most of whom were white, came forward with allegations against Weinstein. And so I think the the reality is that this case did show um, that change is possible, that accountability is possible. But the sheer number of women who had to come forward in order for that accountability to to happen is is really a, a, a problem for 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 long-term accountability. And I think today we're watching in real time as multiple women come forward with allegations of sexual harassment against New York's Governor Cuomo, uh, including allegations of things that unfolded in the the last year. Um, We can certainly tell from news reporting and social media feeds uh, that Weinstein's trial and conviction did not stop workplace harassment or sexual assault. And it's hard for researchers to track in real time changes in rates of gender-based violence. So we don't have research to point to yet to say the Weinstein conviction happened on this date and here's what we've seen uh, in terms of uh, convictions and so forth. 
Uh, but there, I just don't see a good reason to think that rates have suddenly decreased. Um, after all, if you look at something such as campus sexual assault, the rates of sexual assaults have been largely the same since the 1950s. The earliest research that we have on campus sexual assault said about one in five women uh, would, ex would be assaulted, and those are the same estimates that we have today. So it's going to take a lot more than a single prosecution to really change things. So broadening it out a little bit more, where does the problem of this institutionalized sexual abuse of women and sexual abuse in general sit now? I think when we think about the institutionalized uh, responses to sexual abuse and sexual assault, um, there are some interesting things that come to mind. We can take a look, for example, at Title IX uh, and responses to campus sexual assault as, as sort of a, a one example here of, of institutional takes on things. Um, last August, new rules went into effect for institutional responses to sexual harassment and assault. And leading up to those changes and since, victim advocates, survivors, experts nationally have said repeatedly um, that the rules make reporting harder uh, for survivors. Uh, they make school processes more like criminal proceedings. And we already know full well that um, sexual assault criminal proceedings um, uh, really don't serve justice in, in most cases. At the same time, over the last year, we've seen institutions continue to fail survivors. Um, we've seen waves of allegations come to the surface at places like Louisiana State University, LSU, uh, where survivors told really similar stories about reports of harassment and abuse being ignored, survivors not being helped. Uh, and there's a word for this. Uh, my colleagues have called this institutional betrayal, the idea that the institutions who are responsible for our well-being and our growth and our development are part of covering up or not holding people accountable for harms caused by harassment and assault. And so I think what we're seeing is an opportunity instead for institutions to lead with courage um, and by that, what I mean is leading in terms of active support of survivors, um, actively asking, what do you need? How can we help? That we need those responses at an individual level, and we also need them from our institutions. Since this verdict came down last February, um, we're in a very different place. Uh, so by March, obviously, much of the U.S. was under COVID quarantine restrictions, and you've noted that a number of factors have accompanied the pandemic related to sexual abuse and assault. Um, unemployment, lockdown, economic uncertainty, all kinds of different things have created this dangerous situation. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. We know from uh, research, including research during the Great Recession, um, that economic uncertainty predicts domestic violence, increases in domestic violence. Um, and we're seeing that unfold, similar patterns unfold now. Uh, new research just came out in the last week making the case that when you compare estimates of domestic violence from before COVID and lockdowns to after, that it does indeed look like um, reports of domestic violence have gone up um, during COVID. I suspect that it'll be a while until we really can entangle what's happened because if you look at things such as reports to law enforcement, 
some women may not have been able to call the police because during lockdown they were stuck in their homes and it wasn't safe to make a phone call. Um, so I think it's going to be a while until we really understand the full impact of COVID on rates of domestic violence, but we certainly know that economic uncertainty is linked with things being more dangerous for uh, women in violent relationships. Sure. So given this changing environment and, and the increased risk and vulnerabilities that, that individuals are facing, how has the Me Too movement or, or the work that it represents rather adapted or rearranged to address that? I think the COVID environment has made some things more challenging. So uh, in terms of some of our ways of trying to raise awareness about sexual assault, this time last year as campuses were shuttering, uh, it would have been the time that we would have been building out programming for Sexual Assault Awareness Month in April. And so opportunities in person to educate one another about the impact of sexual assault, to go with one another to the Capitol, to lobby, um, that all of those um, really shifted in the COVID environment. Um, my team and I, we've been doing a, a project looking at uh, tweets about domestic violence from before the shutdown to uh, after, before the lockdown, excuse me. Um, and that project's still in progress, uh, but what we see overall in terms of patterns so far is that people were tweeting a lot more about domestic violence uh, as news reports were coming out about homes being dangerous places for women. We were tweeting more, we were sharing resources, but then quickly, uh, uh, weeks into the lockdown, you see the number of tweets drop off and the conversation drop off. So while we have these momentary blips of awareness, it's not necessarily translating into cultural change, societal change. Um, and so I think the Me Too environment has tried to adapt and, and say, how do we pull, pull uh, some tools online in, in the COVID context? Uh, but this is a particularly difficult problem. Violence against women and girls has been an issue for millennia. Uh, and we haven't we haven't ended it yet. I'm curious, based on the work that you do, the research you've done, um, do you have any thoughts on how activists or advocates in this area can begin to address these problems and make it more of a systemic change? I do have thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> so I think the thing that's really clear to me um, is that when it comes to violence against women, whether it's sexual assault, domestic violence, sex trafficking, that we have to stop thinking about that as a women's issue, as identity politics, as a siloed um, phenomenon. And instead, we've really got to understand that it's all of our issue, that sexual assault, the consequences that girls and women uh, bear from assaults those ripple out and they impact our whole community, whether they take women out of the workforce, um, knock women off pathways to college, um, all of these concrete ways that we know violence against women can have an impact on education and career, we all lose when that happens. And I think from an activist and organizing perspective, the more that we can come to see that it's all of our stake uh, in terms of ending violence against women, this is not a women's issue, this is everyone's issue that there's potential for new problem solving, new coalition building, uh, and better organizing around um, sexual violence. Going back to the Harvey Weinstein verdict for a minute, um, 
that was a great victory for for the Me Too movement, which really took off on Twitter in 2017, but has been around for a long time. I think since 2006 at least. Um, so, so what other victories can we attribute to this movement, and what were some of the other verdicts or jumps in awareness that we might be able to point to um, as successes of this campaign? Yeah, it's so important um, what you mentioned there about Me Too uh, predating 2017. And in fact, the movement was started by Tarana Burke, a Black woman, in 2006. And it became a hashtag tied to uh, investigative reporting uh, related to Weinstein in 2017, uh, when uh, uh, a lot of uh, actors, particularly white women, started uh, using the hashtag. And I think if we go back to the roots of it with um, Burke's leadership nationally around sexual abuse and sexual assault, um, it started as a way to communicate solidarity, to express Me Too, um, to help survivors know that they weren't alone. And I think in that way, the movement has fundamentally changed things, that what Burke set, set in motion has been um, has been remarkable, that the conversation is different. We all know what Me Too means. It's a way of um, quickly naming something that for decades and centuries was taboo. And I, I think that is uh, incredibly important. I think the next steps are now we have to pair awareness and the breaking of those taboos with culture change. Um, that uh, now, now the work of how do we prevent uh, violence really becomes um, center as well as how do we respond effectively as communities when violence does happen. So just kind of building off of what you said, a lot of the major cases brought forth since 2017 have centered around high profile individuals and survivors. Um, have the successes of this movement also trickled down in some ways to people who maybe aren't already in the limelight? You know, I think one of the most inspiring examples that I've seen in the last few years has been uh, organizing coming out of California and Chicago. Um, organizing campaigns led by women in hospitality and hotel um, worker positions. Um, and there, there have been campaigns there uh, on the theme of hands off, pants on, uh, that recognize that women in hospitality and hotel uh, jobs are frequently exposed, um, literally, to sexual harassment uh, in the workplace. And what those workers have done in organizing has been to get things like safety buttons so that they have an alarm they can press when confronted with harassment or abuse in the workplace. And the message is simple. It's about the dignity of work and being able to go to work and do your job safely. And it's been very inspiring to see the kind of organizing, woman-led organizing, worker-led organizing that has gone into creating change in communities uh, for women who are not in the limelight, um, women who are uh, trying to have a dignified uh, day, of, day of work and deserve that. You touched on this slightly when we were talking about Toronto Burke, but 2020 did not just bring with it this pandemic. It also brought um, a reckoning around racial inequity in this country. So how has that conversation shaped the way that we're talking about sexual abuse? And what does this picture look like when we take that intersectional view? Um, Black Lives Matter has done so much to bring uh, racial injustices, long-standing racial injustices in the criminal legal system to the forefront and to broader public awareness. 
And I think that that awareness has broadened conversations about justice, uh, that the criminal legal system isn't the only way uh, that one can seek justice. And so I am seeing an expansion of conversations about things like restorative or transformative justice. Unlike the criminal legal system, which is based more on punishment and retribution, restorative and transformative justice center more about who was hurt, what do they need, what kind of um, circumstances, social circumstances, sort of root problems gave rise to the abuse and the assault. And I think that these are really important conversations because we have known for a long time that the criminal legal system rarely gives women the justice that they seek after a sexual assault. Um, sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes. When it is reported, it's very unlikely to um, result in an arrest and a conviction. Um, it's, a, it's a minority of cases that go down that path. So um, I think that the um, pandemic, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, and a, a greater awareness of racial inequities have uh, helped to shift the conversation to have a new opportunity to ask, what do survivors want? Um, we, uh, people have long assumed what they want is justice through a courtroom, uh, and it's time to uh, allow survivors to lead uh, and tell us what they need and what they want in the aftermath of violence. What inequities exist among survivors? I think, and victims, I think a lot of the times we hear about white women, but we don't talk about men. We don't talk about transgender folks as much. We don't talk about how the situation looks different for black women. Um, so can you talk a little bit about these inequities among how different victims are treated? When we look at um, an intersectional frame for uh, thinking about sexual abuse and sexual assault, what stands out is differences from the likelihood of being assaulted all the way through to how one is treated after an assault happens. So for example, um, Native American women are at higher risk of being uh, sexually assaulted. And the a history of sexual assault is part of the story of, uh, of colonization in the US, sexual assault being wielded against communities um, Native American communities in order to undo the fabric of, of those communities. You can look then to other um, groups of individuals, for example, bisexual women are at particularly high risk of being sexually assaulted. And again, that seems to reflect something about sexual assault being used to uh, reinforce cisgender heterosexual norms uh, in, in society. Um, so identity, um, life history has an impact on who is at high risk of sexual assault. Then I think you also see differences in how people are treated. So many of the problems that we're grappling with right now in society around systemic oppressions, racial injustices, um, they are tangled up too in how we respond to sexual assault as, as a society. Given everything that we've talked about, given some of the solutions you've offered already, um, where, in your opinion, should this work go next? What big blind spots remain um, and what work still needs to be done? I think where we need to go next is this recognition that sexual assault and all forms of gender violence aren't women issues, aren't identity issues, it's all of our issues. 
And when I look at the thread of my research, um, what I see is that gender violence, um, say things like witnessing a parent, uh, a, a mother being uh, physically harmed in the home, that that's linked with measurable impacts on kids' attention systems and memory. That has an impact in turn in how kids do in schools. And so um, where I think as a society, we're starting to talk more about school to prison pipelines, we've got to start talking about abuse to prison pipelines and recognize that if you are someone, say, working in admissions here at DU on another college campus, this is your issue that we are losing talented young people to the impacts of trauma when it makes it hard for them to sit still and learn in a classroom. And then fast forward to our campuses. This is not a women's issue. This is all of our issues when we are at risk of losing talented students from college campuses uh, after, after sexual assaults, if our institutions can't respond in a way to really support survivors, or then on into the workplace uh, where domestic violence and sexual assault have an impact on women's ability to get and hold um, jobs and advance in their jobs. And so I think the, the blind spot, if you will, is when we, um, we sort of reduce things down to sexual assault is a woman's issue or it's, it's only about sexual assault. Sexual assault, other forms of gender violence, they're connected to all aspects of um, women's lives and have an impact on all of our communities. So the Me Too movement we know now has a global reach. Can you speak to a little bit of what that might look like in other countries? Or does it have a, a large reach in other countries? Yes, we've certainly seen from Latin America to Europe to Japan, uh, uh, Me Too, a greater awareness of sexual assault, um, more reporting and conversation and activism around, around sexual assault. Um, and I think that plays out in unique ways in each, in each country, um, whether it's tied to other things about re reproductive rights or perceptions of women in the workplace. Uh, but we certainly are seeing, I think, a, a global change in conversation about sexual assault uh, and a weakening of the taboos that used to be so firm against uh, disclosing sexual assault. We're a year out from this trial, from this verdict. Um, how can activists, how can people who really care about this issue make sure that it's not fizzled out because of this one victory? How do we maintain that momentum? I think maintaining the momentum is really about building coalitions. So if you care about sexual assault, finding someone who cares about education reform or health reform or criminal legal system reform and working with them. Uh, because sexual assault ties into all of those issues. And so I think the future is about uh, coalition building. It's about recognizing root causes of problems that are complex and not allowing our message or our asks for change to be reduced down to a, a, a simpler answer, um, that instead we need to really go for the gold. We have to be talking about how these problems uh, intersect and are complicated and how we need broad coalitions in order to uh, shift how we do things to prevent violence and then respond effectively when it does happen. So Anne, since the, the trial, has there been a significant change in the way that 
we culturally conceptualize sexual abuse? Has there been a sea change in our attitudes towards sexual abuse and sexual assault? I think we're seeing um, some hints of change, uh, but we're also seeing some old patterns uh, repeat themselves. So for example, I think back to last summer when Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC um, took the, to the House floor to speak out against a colleague who had called her a sexist name. Um, and other women in Congress um, spoke up about their experiences of harassment and assault um, from the House floor as well. And then some in the media started to bemoan that this was political theater, that AOC was just trying to build her brand. Um, and we tend to see that kind of knee-jerk reaction as a society to accuse women of somehow gaining from speaking out about the harassment or the abuse that they've experienced rather than recognizing the tremendous courage it, it can take to do so. But then I was um, really interested last month when AOC took to um, Instagram Live to disclose her own sexual assault history in the context of talking about the January 6th insurrection. And I found myself sort of bracing for an attack and she previewed that. She said, I'm sure I'll be attacked for, for saying this. Um, or, and um, it, that didn't really come to pass. And her, her disclosure was very personal and emotional. And then last week we saw a, a Marine, um, a, a video that went viral of her reacting to the news that uh, another Marine who had admitted to sexual misconduct was going to be allowed to stay in the Marine Corps. And that very visceral response that she had uh, went viral uh, and it led um, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and other members of Congress to say they were going to investigate that this was deeply disturbing. So I'm, I'm sort of struck by two things when I think about this mix of, of how we respond to women's disclosures. That first, um, it's really important to listen to women um, and listen in a way that we can be affected by their stories. And I, I think that's what went right in how people responded to AOC's Instagram live um, disclosure and to uh, the woman who is, is a Marine that we're sort of make ourselves vulnerable in order to really listen. And, and yet we're strong enough to hear what women have to say. But the, the flip side of that is that we still have this expectation that women have to be tearful that they have to show us all those emotions in order for us to be persuaded to care and to listen to them. And that's not okay. Um, that we should be out there fighting against sexual assault and harassment simply because it's wrong and not because women have to show us their vulnerability uh, and so forth in order for us to take it seriously. And in that way, I think we have a subtle version of one of those rape myths that the Weinstein trial raised, um, that there's an expectation that women will be tearful and hurt and irrevocably hurt by se sexual assault. And that does sometimes happen, but the reason sexual harassment is, and assault is wrong is because it's wrong. It's not wrong because of how a particular woman discloses what happened to her. Anne DePrince is a professor of psychology and director of DU's Center for Community Engagement to Advance Scholarship and Learning. For more of her insights on the Me Too movement and the impacts of COVID on domestic violence and sexual assault, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. James Swearingen arranged our theme. 
Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Alyssa Hurst, today's host and Radio Ed's executive producer. This is Radio Ed.